This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former New York City Police Chief Bill Bratton discusses his three decades in law enforcement and offers his thoughts on policing in America today. His book is called The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. He's interviewed by Charles Ramsey, former Philadelphia police commissioner and Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Chief. Bill, how are you? I'm great, Chuck. Good to be talking with you. Yeah, same here. Uh, Let me start by saying I read your book and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, It really was a very good read. So I'm so glad that you uh, wrote it. But I do have uh, my first question. You know, uh, the book really chronicles your entire career, which obviously it was a tremendous uh, uh, career that you've had to span, what, five decades uh, but you chose to really start chapter one uh, with December 20th, 2014, the murder of officers Ramos and Lou. Why did you choose that event to really start this book? Well, for several reasons. One, it was one of the most significant and unfortunately horrific events in that 50-year career. Uh, when you lose two officers at one time, uh, that, that, that thankfully is still an exception. But uh, it it was such a horrible tragedy coming five days before Christmas. Secondly, it was unfortunately reflective of what was going on and eventually accelerated over the next several years. The uh, breakdown of uh, uh, trust between police and uh, so many communities in the country, this uh, anger directed toward the police, anger that in this case, two officers. So it seemed to me to be an appropriate place to start to help frame the conversation. A third reason was that, ironically, uh, it took me back almost 50 years to when I began my career in 1970 in Boston as a young cop, almost as you were beginning yours in Chicago, that uh, a murder of a Boston police officer during a bank robbery occurred just as I was coming into the business, Walter Schroeder. Two years later, his brother, a Boston police detective, was murdered. I ultimately received the first Boston police Schroeder medal for uh, valor. Uh, and so I had that connectivity to that double death back then. But that was also a time in the early 70s where the anger between police and community, and particularly black community, was so uh, difficult that it was resulting in tremendous violence between the two. And so it kind of took me back 50 years. And so I decided to start there to start framing conversation of how did we get there? And that's what I tried to do in the book to kind of explain yeah. how did we get to this point in, in, in our country's history. You know, you do uh, cover your early career, but you also cover your childhood. And uh, <laughs> It's hard uh, to believe in, we had that this so, far, so long ago. <laughs> born in Massachusetts, uh, working class family, dad holding two jobs, but nobody in your family was a police officer. And you say in your book, that you always, as long as you can remember, wanted to be a police officer. In fact, it's, a, uh, I thought, a cute story. Your mother probably didn't think it was so cute at the time when you were about a year and a half old and you <laughs> ventured out into the street to try to direct traffic, which well, I imagine it's, it's, uh, that was probably uh, story. the last time you ever, you ever pulled that one. It's a Let's story talk a little bit about. I, I, I don't want to correct my mother, but that's the story that she told, so I'll stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> but talk a little bit about how you got 
hooked on policing. I mean, a lot of us, you know, have had incidents occur, or maybe a family or whatever, but it seems like you just kind of like knew at a very young age, this is what you wanted to do. Well, growing up in the 50s, and if you remember the 50s, I'm so glad that I had the 50s as a childhood experience because it's so different than what kids go through today. Yeah. Television yeah. was just coming into its own, and the television shows of that era, so many of them were police-related. We had Dragnet, 1 Adam 12, Police Beat, uh, and the television of that era really portrayed the police in a very positive light, that uh, Jack Webb, Joe Friday, the, the two cops and 1 Adam 12, and so for a kid of 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, that was very influential. Simultaneous to that, uh, I was a avid reader and throughout my life, and I was in and out of the library down the corner from where I grew up. And in that library building was also the local police station. So I'd check out a book that I talk about, York Police, a, a children's book of New York City Police of the 1950s and 60s. But I'd then be there at four o'clock to watch the cops mounts, literally march out of the station house two by two, get in the back of the paddy wagon to be delivered to their walking post. There's very few actually were in cars in that era. Yeah. So the, the influence back then was a very positive one, uh, very different than what kids watch on TV and the movies today. There's, I would argue there's probably more bad stories about cops and movies and TV than there are good ones today. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's no question about that. So let's fast forward a little bit. You came, you come back from Vietnam, and in October of 1970, you had an opportunity to join the Boston Police Department, which is what you did. Talk a little bit and try to and give the readers just a sense of what Boston was like in 1970, and just as importantly, what the police department was like in 1970. Mentioning, just for an aside, uh, the Vietnam military experience, uh, I joined rather than was drafted into the U.S. Army. Joining you agreed to spend one extra year. But in return for that, they would guarantee what assignment you could get into. And I wanted to be a military policeman. Mm-hmm. So since I was only 18 years of age, couldn't become a cop plus 21, I was willing to give up that extra year. However, uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, that uh, military police uh, at that time were also sentry dog handlers. So I thought I was going to be running around in the 50 military police uniforms. Instead, I spent three years walking behind a dog. <laughs> and so I, 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 my, my policing career began uh, uh, working with sentry dogs. In any event, uh, I got back and very quickly was able to join the Boston Police Department. The department was expanding, interestingly enough, to fulfill a union contract. Unions were just starting to come into power at that time. And you and I both wrestled with unions for the rest of our career. And one of the things they were able to negotiate were two officer cars, that every car in Boston had to have two officers. And so I benefited from the fact that Boston hired a couple of hundred cops in a short period of time to staff up those cars. But what I came into, uh, what was called a profession, but it didn't have any of the hallmarks of a profession. It had really no body of knowledge, no research, uh, very few people with college educations, including police leadership that uh, it was uh, a brutal department. Uh, use of force was very frequently uh, 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 meted out. Uh, corruption was uh, uh, not on the scale of what we know of in New York with the NAP Commission, but it was there. And uh, the racism issue was there also. That uh, department was almost all white, 55 blacks on a force of 2,800. And uh, it was a time coming out of the Civil Rights era. Boston was the most one of the most segregated cities in America. 
And literally my first 10 years on the job, I spent about five of those years in the midst of the busing desegregation and housing desegregation battles in Boston. And they were literally all out battles. It did not happen peacefully in Boston. Uh, you know, uh, that was an interesting um, read, your time in, in Boston, and I, I knew that you started your career in Boston, but you mentioned a lot of people that really you found to be influential, and uh, uh, certainly this outside chief that came in uh, that, you know, really began to kind of shake things up in the Boston Police Department. Talk about him for a moment, and and also whether or not he really played a role in influencing you later in life when you had an opportunity to lead your own department with some of the things that he was doing. The uh, gentleman you're referring to is uh, Bob DeGrazia, now deceased. DeGrazia uh, was brought in as an outsider. Mayor Kevin White had no confidence that the leadership of the Boston Police Department would change what he felt needed to be changed. So he did the unheard of. He brought in an outsider. Uh, he was at that time, I think, a superintendent in St. Louis County, a area of the country you're very familiar with. And uh, he came in and uh, he's six foot two, six foot three, Italian in uh, a largely Irish police department. And uh, he had a uh, uh, an afro, if you can believe it, in terms of curly hair, that uh, was as large as some of the afros that were out there at that time. Uh, wore outrageous three-piece suits and ties. Uh, the police commissioner's tie was an old uh, uh, big Buick Electra, black uh, Buick Electra, that was driven by a uniformed traffic officer with his white hat. And DeGrazia got rid of that, got a baby blue uh, Dodge with a uh, dark blue uh, uh, vinyl roof and drove himself. <laughs> so just the, symbol, just the symbolism of change uh, that brought about. But he several things that, uh, and he's been my role model, my inspiration, because he was a transformational agent. And though he ended up eventually uh, being pushed out of office, that's happened to me a couple of times, as you know, that uh, in a short period of time, he profoundly changed the Boston Police Department and created opportunities for younger officers, such as myself, who had become very disillusioned with ever getting ahead in the department to take new exams that were put together. So that literally within five years, I passed the sergeant's exam. I was, I think, uh, with the exception of Paul Evans, the youngest sergeant ever promoted in the history of the department at that time. But he also was intending to seed the growth path. That long after he was gone, the leadership of the Boston Police Department would be college educated, would have had a broad breadth of experiences studying for the promotional exams. And if you think of the succession of police commissioners in Boston, all of whom you have worked with, it was Paul Evans. Billy Evans, who was a clerk working for me when I was a young sergeant in Boston, Kathy O'Toole, uh, most of the leadership of the 90s and into the 21st century came from the changes to Grazie made in the 70s. And that was a role model for me in the sense of any place I've gone, and you've, you've emulated that in Philadelphia and D.C., you weren't there just for the time being that you were there, but to try and create change that would go on long after we were gone. And I believe that's the case in New York. I think it, uh, to a lesser extent, in Boston. Uh, and I think certainly the case in Los Angeles, where my successes in L.A. have been Charlie Beck and Mike Moore, two of the most forward-thinking police chiefs in America, both of whom you've had the opportunity to also work with. You know, you brought me back in time a bit. 
when you tell the story about how the commissioner visited a roll call and you committed the cardinal sin <laughs> of actually asking a question. Can you imagine you know, that? <laughs> you go to roll call and you say, are there any questions? And no hands go up. You raised your hand. You asked the question. Talk a little bit about that. Well, as you know, Chuck, you and I have become very experienced that as outsiders coming into different departments that how do you really begin to win the trust of the cops and you get it win it by being there, by getting out, walking around, showing up at roll calls, showing up at all hours of the night, not to catch them, but basically to listen to them, to make yourself available. And that's something that Grazia did. He made it a point of getting around of every station house to introduce himself. At that time, I had become so disillusioned with policing in the Boston police. I was actually looking to move to a suburban police department uh, where I was actually uh, living at the time. And, um, he came into that roll call, and I've been hearing good things uh, about him, but I was desperate to get out of that particular district, which was the dumping ground of the department, not knowing anybody, not having a rabbi, not having any connections. I was stuck there, and uh, it was a tough place to work. The bosses were awful. There was no uh, money, if you will. In those days, you were desperate for overtime or paid details, and uh, I was just not happy. Uh, and he came in and changes he was making in the department, as well as the idea of showing up at roll call. Uh, so I had the audacity with all the uh, leadership of the district standing behind him, looking at us, to raise my hand. <laughs> and as you know, you always lunch for the first person and raises a hand to ask a question. So he, he kind of jumped at me. Yes, officer. And uh, what's your question? I said, how do I get out of here? <laughs> and he was a little taken aback. How do you get out of here? I, I said, yes, I've, I've, I've been looking to transfer out of here. And he turns to the uh, assembled roll of scowls behind him and asks, well, isn't there a, a blue form or something they make out? And everybody around me just started laughing because in that station, if you submitted a blue form, the transfer request, it immediately went into the circular file. Exactly. So, uh, and he was not aware of that. He <laughs> found out about that. But by happenstance, a very good uh, friend of mine who would come on the job with me had gone into one of the units that DeGrazia had created, an anti-corruption unit, a special investigation unit. They were all pariahs to the rest of the organization. But Frank Covasiero was his name. He was aware of my disillusion. later and Sergeant Dan Green's behind the desk and Dan Green looks at me and says what the so-and-so are you doing here Bratton reporting for duty Sarge he said get the hell out of here you've been transferred to District 14. <laughs> I really, thank you Sarge and out the door I went to District 14. So my career with the Boston Police Department was changed because of that circumstance. Things that the Grazia did to deal with the corruption, the detective sergeants at that time were the bag men. They took care of the, the gambling and fixing the cases, et cetera. And this was no secret. It was, it was known. And nobody would do anything about it. On a Saturday morning, he transferred every one of them. And that sent the Saturday morning, Saturday morning massacre, it was known as. That sent the message loud and clear. It was a new game in town. Secondly, uh, he brought in five whiz kids, five outside young uh, uh, men who were just extraordinary. Gary Hayes, who went on to found the Police Executive Research Forum. Bob Wasserman, who you and I know very well. He's been a mentor to me for 40-some-odd years. Still think he's one of the smartest people that's ever been in the business. 
he brought in uh, Mike Gardner, who totally transformed the civil service system to allow young people to get promoted. They totally changed the academy training. Uh, one of the people they brought in from the outside was Harry Schlossberg, uh, Harry Schlossberg, who just passed away here in New York, who created the hostage negotiation initiative. And I was trained for uh, a period of time, myself and Chuck Wexler. Chuck Wexler was one of the uh, young student interns who was brought in. Chuck Wexler and I actually shared a desk at police headquarters in the commissioner's office for a period of time. So when you look at these young minds who just changed everything, they created a planning and research committee. They had 26 people assigned to planning and research where they had done three. And they opened it up to redo the rules and regulations of the Boston Police Department. They were looking for volunteers. I, as a young police officer, I love the idea of once again, raise my hand. Up I went, and I'm sitting beside the chief of the department. I'm sitting beside other superintendents, lieutenants, the civilians, the whiz kids. And I was loving it that I, I had a voice. I had a position. Union never liked me for that, though, because the union didn't want to work with the Grazi. They hated them. Right from the beginning, they hated them, which is fascinating. Because, uh, actually, what he was doing was for the benefit of the department, the image of it, but they never saw it that way. In any event, uh, DeGrazia, uh, still in touch with his wife. Uh, she lives down in Florida. He passed away a couple of years ago. One of my great joys, and you'd appreciate this, when I was sworn in uh, as police chief in Los Angeles, I invited Bob DeGrazia out for the ceremony. And his, oh, wife, yeah. his wife said it was one of the greatest joys of his life to see what he had created back in 1975 Formerly New York City Commissioner and now Police Chief in Los Angeles, DeGrazzi couldn't get over it. And the idea that the dream that he had in 75, here it was 40 years later, was still sprouting branches. You know, uh, the names that you called as you were thinking back on those days in Boston, it is absolutely incredible that that much talent was assembled in one place at the same time. I mean, that is very unusual in any police department, there's always some talent there, but the level of talent that you just described, uh, I, I just, I don't know if that's existed elsewhere, maybe so, but I just can't think of a place that had that many at the same time. Chuck, what was as important was by bringing in the outsiders, that was great risk because in that era, they didn't bring in outsiders, everything was promoted within. But he also unleashed, uh, unlocked the doors to allow talent, talent within the department who were risk takers, people like myself, to uh, flourish, to take those promotional exams, to join these committees. And uh, there are a number of other names that came out of that department going forward. But uh, you and I are long-term friends with Chuck Wexler, head of Perth, who's done so much to really take the Gary Hayes vision back in the 70s and expand it uh, after uh, 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 his predecessor had developed it in the 80s. And look at the influence Perth has even to this day now in 2021. Uh, let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, you leave Boston, and something that I did not know until I read your book was that you were the chief of the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority. Now, I knew about your, in, uh, your New York City transit work, but I didn't know about the Massachusetts Bay uh, transit work. Uh, but those are two departments that are quite different from big city policing, or what I would just call big city policing. Talk about some of the challenges and some of the issues that, uh, that you had in dealing with that type of police department. 
Both of those uh, organizations referenced the MBTA police. Uh, it was known as the MTA in an earlier ver- version. Uh, you're old enough to remember the song Charlie on the MTA, Got On and Never Got Off, that uh, back with the uh, Kingsley brothers, I think, back in the 60s. Uh, in Boston, I had risen to the rank of superintendent in chief, the highest ranking uniformed office within 10 years, thanks largely to the changes the Grazia had made. But uh, I moved ahead probably too fast. And the old guard were able to do me in because of some innocent enough mistakes I made, hubris and uh, otherwise. So that by 1982-83, that uh, I'd been bounced back and then had come back, but was un- not satisfied because I, it, I, I was, in a sense, locked into a closet in some respects. And then a life reserve uh, was thrown to me. Uh, Jimmy O'Leary was running the very scandal-plagued and troubled MBTA system, particularly its police department, a 68-person department trying to police 79 cities and towns that this transit uh, system served. Uh, After thinking about it, I took the risk, going from running a 2,800-person department to a 68-person department that was uh, widely disrespected and thought to be totally ineffective. Probably one of the best decisions I've made in my life because it gave me so much intimacy with getting into a small organization and really testing my ability to turn that organization around, develop talent, emulate uh, my role model, Bob DeGrazia, as the outsider coming in, and uh, learn so much. I was assisted greatly by Bob Wasserman, who by that time had also left the Boston Police Department. Bob was at that time consulting, uh, and I think was actually chief of operations for Lee Brown down in Houston, Texas as Lee was taking on the good old boys of the Houston PD. And I actually went down to Houston to meet with Bob and work with Bob in development of a plan of action for the MBTA, including redesigning the police cars, the the, the image of the organization. And uh, my first major plan of action was developed for the MBTA. The difference with the transit organization is the fact that it covers so much territory versus a city municipality. In this case, I was in, I think, five different counties. I was in uh, literally 78 cities and towns that we were policing with 68 cops. And those challenges were immense. And it was, we had subways, we had commuter rail, we had trolleys. Uh, only thing we didn't have was planes, basically. And I had a lot of fun. Uh, I brought a couple of people on board that uh, Al Sweeney, that uh, lifelong friend, Al and I go back to first grade. And uh, a blending, once again, uh, running a police department, as you know, uh, uh, Chuck, from your experience, it's like planning a wedding. Something old, we're the old. Something new, that uh, new ideas. Something borrowed, that uh, usually I'm borrowing people from previous experiences I bring in. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Well, police department's blue. And the excitement uh, that cannot be matched of coming into a new organization and really just getting to, to stir it up. It's, it's one of the reasons I've changed jobs as often as I did, was just that excitement of building a Super Bowl team. And so I was able to grow the MBTA. Uh, we got crime down. We got the reputation proved. We got them phenomenal equipment to work with. And based on that success, three years later, Governor Mike Dukakis, uh, Massachusetts governor, asked me to come in and take over the Metropolitan District Commission Police, a quasi-state organization that police much of Massachusetts uh, parks, rivers, reservoirs, and many of its highways. 
And uh, it was also a scandal plague to the extent a captain in that organization had been stealing the exams and selling promotions for years. And my predecessor was serving time in state prison. So that some sense of the organization I was going into with incredible low morale. But in both the MBTA and the MDC, I was able to work with the unions who were desperate to change the reputations of the organizations. That is the one thing unions uh, uh, share with management is they're very concerned about the reputation of the organization. They, they fight very hard for their members. They can be pains in the neck, as we know, uh, and oftentimes resist us on administration and discipline. But they want the department to have a good reputation because that benefits them at contract time, et cetera. So the MDC was a growth experience, 68 cops, 600, once again, a turnaround. And then the second transit opportunity came along, and that was the transit police in New York City. Uh, 3,800 officers. At that time, I think uh, transit was like the eighth or ninth largest police department in America. It was a transit department, largely policing the subways in New York City. And George Kelling, we all know George Kelling, Broken Windows fame. George has been a friend and mentor going back to the 80s when Bob Wasserman first introduced me. If you, you can hear it, the chain of relationships. Yeah. Wexler, Wasserman, Kelling, and they're all friends, advisors. The Wasserman and Kelling were consulting with the Transit Authority in New York City, and they were having incredible problems with the homeless and minor crime, as well as serious crime, a lot of it. You remember 1990, worst crime year in the history of our country. So the pitch they made to me, one, you're going to run the eighth and ninth largest police department, New York City. I had my eye on the prize for so many years that uh, oh, come on down. Uh, who knows? If you do a good job there, you might be able to actually get notice for maybe police commissioner. As far-fetched as that sounds, a kid from Boston basically uh, running a 600-person department. But I was actively looking at the potential to become potentially commissioner in New York, even back to my younger days. Okay, to New York, and uh, same thing, a disillusioned department that was incredibly ineffective, uh, brought in some outside advisors and consultants, Kelling, Wasserman, others. Uh, John Linder, who I think you might know that uh, yeah. was already yeah. there, and I've used John in every department ever since. And uh, we had a phenomenal turnaround, but probably the, the character that uh, was so influential in policing so influential in reducing crime and systems to do something about crime was Jack Maple. Jack Maple, uh, the late great Jack Maple, uh, fat little transit police detective lieutenant, but he's also one of the smartest people I've ever met on how to deal with crime. And he would put the academics to shame and often did and <laughs> delighted in doing it. And Jack with his outrageous outfit, his Homburg hats and his double breasted uh, uh, suits and bow ties and two-tone shoes, uh, Jack was, uh, he was a fine. And we were simpatico. I was a great believer in mapping crime and putting the dots up to spot clusters and patterns. And Jack was doing the same thing in the subway environment, which is a very different environment. In the case of New York City, there's 456 stations in New York City. At any given time, there's four to 5,000 train cars running through it, three or 4,000 buses, three and a half. Now it's almost 6 million riders before the epidemic. And uh, the transit experience was probably my most satisfying. That transit in New York was separate from the city police with the 25,000 and the housing police with 4,000. But they were a dumping ground in the sense they were the old police. And you see, with New York City police officers, people say, really, where do you work? Oh, I work in transit. Oh, because they just were not well thought of. We made them the Marine Corps. 
In two and a half years, we got the department nationally accredited, as I had done with the MBTA. I had a great team working with me, They and the union. Uh, when I talk about having good relations with unions, when we received national accreditation in Santa Monica, California, the union paid for the whole 60-person team to go to California for the award ceremony. Can you imagine that? Because they felt so proud about the idea that they had become accredited and were now getting this reputation in New York as the Marine Corps of New York City Police Departments. So I had so much fun in uh, transit, but it also allowed me to reconnoiter that big department across the river because I was headquartered in Brooklyn. So in New York, they refer to the city means Manhattan. The rest of it is the burbs. And Manhattan is uh, where you make it. And where some people unfortunately take it, <laughs> depending if you're on the, the lawful side or the criminal side. And so I was able to watch uh, and intimately uh, uh, look at the uh, New York City Police Department, which at that time was under the control of Lee Brown. Once again, being advised by Bob Wasserman, who was advising me in the transfer police. So I was already laying the groundwork to potentially, in my off-Broadway transit production, get on Broadway with the New York City Police Department. And as luck would have it, a couple of years later, it happened. Yeah, let's talk about your first tour of duty in uh, New York as New York City Police Commissioner. Obviously, you did have a chance to serve as Boston Police Commissioner. But let's fast forward now to New York. First time around, New York City, the largest department in the United States. I don't know what the sworn strength was when you took it over in 94, uh, but I don't think it was up to 40,000 yet. It was still... It was uh, uh, in 95, uh, Giuliani was able to do what a previous mayor had not been able to do, merge the three departments. So we went up to 38,000. Mm. After I left in 96, uh, by 99, with the uh, addition of COPS from the COPS program, uh, the 100,000 were hired. They went up to 41,000 for a while. They're now mm. down to back down around 33, 34,000 once again. Unbelievable, the size, the complexity <laughs> of an organization like that. How do you manage something like that? Talk about the challenges in managing something that large as a New York City Police Department. And I'll tell you, Chuck, uh, the toughest management job I had was running that 68-person police department. Because in the intimacy of that department, you were the go-to person for everything. You know, you had a staff. I didn't have captains. I didn't have majors. I had lieutenants and sergeants. And I had a corporation counsel for my law, law issues. But it all came into that office. It's like being a district commander, a precinct commander. NYPD, in some respects, was, you know, people laugh if you say it was easier. But it was the talent pool in that organization. Uh, I had almost a 1,000 captains and above in the organization. I had 26 deputy commissioners with phenomenal expertise in legal matters, technical matters. Uh, I didn't have to go far to get a question answered. Just pick up the phone. And boy, when you called, the commissioner called, they jumped. And the answers were like that. In the transit police, I had to not only ask the questions, I had to write the answers. So uh, the beauty of it is you could surround yourself with such incredible talent. And I had an extraordinary Super Bowl team. I brought Jack Maple over. Uh, I had John Timoney, known to us, uh, well, actually preceded you in Philadelphia and then Miami, uh, Louis Anamone, a legendary character character, John Miller. John Miller I had as my first press commissioner, and uh, everybody knows John Miller in our business, certainly. Uh, John, I gave jobs, uh, each uh, brought in three times. He was my 
Deputy Commissioner for Public uh, Information, so he ran a follow Giuliani, but a year before I did. I brought him in as head of counterterrorism in the LAPD in 2002, and then brought him back as head of counterterrorism in the NYPD in 2014. His wife still claims I've cost him a fortune, and I have. You know, he's given up million-dollar jobs to take a $200,000 a year job. And I also had, once again, the civilians that I brought in from the outside. Uh, uh, the first time that I had uh, uh, Kelling, Wasserman, and some others. And then in my second go-around, 2014, I'm jumping ahead a little on you, but it links back to 94. In the course, as uh, you know, in your 50-year career, you meet some incredibly talented people, and you're fortunate enough to work with them here or there. 2014, I had the opportunity to, uh, it's like the movie The Sting, Paul Newman and Robert mm -hmm. Bedford, mm -hmm. The Last Sting. And everybody wanted in. Everybody wanted to come in. And I had all friends, colleagues from all my departments over the years knocking on the door. They all wanted the last hurrah. And I got them all in the door. We had, when I had my executive staff meetings, there's Kelly and Wasserman, Abel and Linda, Maple, well, uh, Maple had uh, passed on. I uh, love him prior to that time. But uh, uh, literally, I had this Super Bowl team. And with that talent, uh, that uh, I was the captain of the ship, but boy, I had a lot of people rowing, and uh, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere without them all rowing in the same direction. You know, your first tour is uh, Commissioner of New York, um, a uh, system that revolutionized American policing, CompStat, was born. CompStat, computer statistics. Talk about that, would you, and uh, the role that you, Jack Maple, and others played and did you really think it was going to have the kind of impact that it eventually did have in terms of crime reduction and national recognition? The stories we're telling, most of them were in the book. And this one I go into great detail on uh, in the book uh, about uh, CompStat, how it came to be created, how it came to be named. And uh, the origin of it for me really was in the 70s as a young sergeant lieutenant in a police district, I had huge maps and every day I'd have a clerk put on the map little dots, different colored dots for different crimes. And very quickly, the cops in the roll call room could see these little clusters of patterns developing. And we had the expression cops on the dots. On Sundays, I'd sit at my IBM electric typewriter, I had the only one in the police department, and I'd do directed patrol forms indicating, I want you to spend an hour at this location. We're having robberies here. We're having disturbances there. And it really was the beginning for me of the use of data and using it on a uh, uh, timely basis. So going forward into New York, when I met Jack Maple, Jack Maple was doing the same thing in transit. In transit, a very different type of system. In transit, uh, you identify a location, not by a street address, you identify it by a poll number. Every column that holds up the ceiling in a subway station has a number on it. So when an officer would report a crime, you'd report it at poll number 36 or stairway number 43. So Maple had maps where of the whole system, like I used to have in Boston. So we with that kindred spirit in the understanding mm -hmm. of information. But what we also understood was the importance of the timeliness of it. And in that era, it's hard to believe, people would not believe that, that era, as you know, we really weren't gathering crime information in a, a, a quick fashion. We'd gather at the end of the month, the FBI gathered twice a year. What the hell good was it a year later when they finally reported? So one night, uh, Maple sitting up at Elaine's, uh, the uh, favorite uh, uh, restaurant, watering hall, I guess you call it, with Miller. And he's doodling on a napkin. 
And, uh, you know, we're talking about what we're trying to do. And he comes up with uh, four elements which became the foundation for CompStep. One, timely accurate intelligence. Gather up information as fast as you can. Accurate information. Where's it happening? Who's doing it? Rapid response. Basically put the cops on the dots, plainclothes uniforms. Thirdly, effective tactics. What's going to work? Is it uh, going to be handled by the precinct? Does it require a headquarters task force? Does it require a task force with the FBI? And lastly, relentless follow-up. The idea that even though you solve the problem, keep going back from time to time and watching, is it coming back? Are you starting to see it starting to back? If you think of it, it's modeled after modern medicine. And policing is like the practice of medicine. Every city is different. We've worked enough of them. And you want a skilled doctor looking at your patient. And I'd like to thank I am, you are, so many of our colleagues, a very skilled physicians looking at their respective cities. And we're always sharing ideas with each other through major city chiefs, uh, through Perth. And it's not that we're so smart individually, but collectively we share a lot of ideas. And that was the basis of CompStat, starting with these four elements. What Maple, Luana Moan, who doesn't get enough credit, but I give him a lot of credit in the book finally for what he did, created a system within the NYPD where we'd gather all the precinct commanders, all the bow commanders together and it had never been done. Put them all in one room to talk about crime. And we put the maps up on the wall, and they'd be expected to talk about patent 34, patent 46. What are you doing about it? And the term CompStat comes from the fact that back in those days, we had those long green sheets that uh, some of the audience are probably too young to remember the green computer sheets. Mm-hmm. Each computer program had an eight-letter name. And in the middle of a snowstorm one night, several of the cops that had helped develop the system, uh, they had to quickly come up with a name so they could create the file. And they were in a hurry to get the hell out of the, uh, the station before the snowstorm shut it down. And they came up with computer statistics, CompStat. So that's how the name was born. That's how the system was born. And a little piece of history that I talk about in the book. And uh, it did revolutionize policing, as you know. Uh, some departments know how to use it. Some don't. Some give lip service to it. But if you use it correctly, it really is uh, the the engine that can drive, the, push the car farther and faster along. It was so successful and so rapidly uh, uh, seized upon by police departments around the country, if not the world, that the Kennedy School of Government with the Ford Foundation every year gives an Innovations in Government Award. And in 1996, uh, the department won a program that was begun in 1994, the Innovations uh, in Government Award for the most innovative system that had been developed in that period of time. Something I was very proud of, Jack Maple, thank God, and his team were allowed, still around to uh, receive it. And even now, uh, uh, anybody in New York City would think to do away with CompStat, they'd be run out of town on the rail. Because it's now been with better computer systems, algorithms, artificial intelligence, it is still a phenomenal uh, tool, something I'm very proud to have been associated with. Well, you should be proud of it. I mean, and, and I think that really, in a lot of ways, cemented your legacy in American policing because you'll forever be associated with, with CompStat. And I yeah. mean, there aren't, many, there aren't many police leaders that really have had that kind of influence uh, in our profession, and you are one of them. So... Well, thank you to that, Chuck. But as you know, the satisfaction that you, I, and some of our contemporaries have is that 
a lot of credit goes to us individually. But as you know, we might have an idea, but in the case of Comstat, it, it had this huge orchestra behind me. And together, those individual instruments created the symphony. And, uh, it, it, and isn't that the wonder of it, that uh, when you can get everybody working together and that's the pride they all feel. And it was the, uh, the source of uh, uh, the Giuliani uh, breakup that I had was largely about the fact that uh, he really did not want to, for political purposes, share the credit with all the people at the NYPD who were really developing what he was getting so much credit for, justifiably, he created the atmosphere, the umbrella. But all those little spokes that held that umbrella up were developed by the talent within the NYPD. But for political purposes, to get reelected to mayor for the second term, he really felt, I think, unjustifiably, if that credit was shared, it would not help him in his reelection. I think it would have helped him on his reelection. And uh, it just caused us to eventually start butting heads and, you know, once again, I got bounced out of a job. Well, you know, I think one of your strong suits, though, and, and it's come through not just from this conversation, just conversations that we've had as long as we've known one another, is that you do build strong teams. You recognize talent. You put that talent where it can do the most good and give a person, give people a chance to really show what they can do. Again, I think uh, your early experiences with DeGrazia may have played DeGrazia a role is that that's in, 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 in that, you know, and it's funny when you look back on a career, how those things that at the time you appreciate it, but you don't really fully understand the significance of, of it until later on when you have a chance to, uh, you know, pay it forward, let's say. Uh, and, and, you know, that, again, is, is something that I think is, is, is remarkable. Um, let's. Let's move forward because I know we're kind of pressed for time. Um, you leave New York. Um, Which time? The first time? Uh, the uh, time? First time. Um, you know, uh, it all came to a head with a, you know, magazine article and your picture on Time magazine. I got to ask you this. If you had it to do over, would you have taken that picture? You better believe it. <laughs> 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 Time, Mag- Time Magazine's been around, what, uh, 100 years, 52 weeks a year. So there's, in the world of billions of people, there's been 5,200 people who've had their picture on the cover of Time Magazine, and I'm one of them. Okay. And, uh, right. and I'm, I'm on that cover because I'm telling the story of the 38,000 cops who were delivering that crime reduction. And uh, I, Giuliani and I were already, I was being pushed out the door, the death by a thousand cuts. So that was kind of my swan song as I went out the door. <laughs> and uh, he eventually made the cover a couple of times that, uh, but I, I was there first. Well, you know, God bless you because that was really, uh, uh, <laughs> didn't I look great in my trench coat under the Brooklyn bridge? You on did. Freezing winter night? <laughs> a great, a great photo. No question about great that. Photo. So now you're out of the business for a period of time. I've gone through that. You feel like you have more in you to give, and yet you're on the sidelines. 9-11 occurs. All kinds of things are happening. Um, but you get another opportunity. Los Angeles, LAPD. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the third largest department in the United States. Um, I don't think there's any department other than maybe New York that people have seen more on in movies and TV and so forth. And has a long career. You mentioned earlier, Dragnet and those TV programs, many were LA based, but LA was going through um, a crisis. They were under a consent decree 
fact, you started as one of the monitors, right? You were on the monitoring right, team monitor. and later um, was appointed as a police chief. Now, your predecessor fought the con- uh, consent decree. You embraced the consent decree. Why? Well, it's an example of sometimes you need an outsider. He was an insider. So we had uh, uh, my predecessor, uh, Chief Fox, extraordinarily prideful individual, but had extraordinary pride in his department despite all its flaws. So would not accept criticism of the department because I believe he just felt it was criticism of him. And uh, so he was never going to accept it, uh, fought it tooth and nail. And so the mayor at that time, Jim Hahn, understood the necessity for a consent decree to keep the federal government from actually taking over the department and uh, uh, decided, and he was told, if you if you get rid of uh, this police chief, that you will not be reelected mayor. And he says, I have to do it. And he, he did it, and they were right. He did not get reelected, largely for the fact, despite my own success uh, coming in, in terms of crime going down, consent decree implementation, what everybody's looking for, uh, particularly the African-American community, which is very, very influential. It's a small community in Los Angeles, 10% of the population, but politically extraordinarily influential. And they did not vote for Han the second time, and it cost him the election. But that's a type of leader, a leader who gave up himself for the greater cause. And I'd like to think that in some of my great satisfaction that uh, he was proven right by bringing me in and the team I brought in with me once again, that achieve what he wanted to achieve, get out from under the consent decree, get the department approved, and most importantly, improve race relations between that department and the black community. Um, You and I have worked a lot of departments. We really understand the history of policing, but that department was literally at war with its black community for 50 years, at war with it. It was, uh, I'd never seen anything like it. And I came out of a very bitter experience in Boston with desegregation in the seventies, but LA was just a, a different kettle of fish altogether. You know, uh, one of the things I found very interesting when I was reading the book was the chapter you have about building relationships with the black community and, and a couple of people in particular that you point out, Alice Harris, Sweet Alice, as, Sweet you, Alice, uh, as you call it. Yeah. And uh, of course, Connie Rice, who made a living suing departments and then later <laughs> became a partner and actually helped. And to this day, uh, Connie uh, is, is, I mean, she just tells you, the LA you know, very, you know, very well, she's a force. She's a force yeah. of nature. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. But you also had a couple of police officers, uh, J.T. Thomas and uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, Booker. Fred, Fred Booker. Fred, it's uh, just, uh, oh, man, Fred. Ooh. Yeah, you know, and when I read some of his stories, it kind of reminded me of some of my own experiences as a young cop coming up. But, you know, you were able to, to really build those relationships that have been strained for so long. Talk a little bit about that. And why is it so important that the uh, police departments really take that extra step to reach out and develop strong relationships with their, uh, particularly communities of color? Well, isn't that the trouble that the profession is in right now, that the lack of trust, uh, the acceleration of lack of trust as a result of George Floyd's uh, tragic death and so many other things going on in the country at this time? Uh, the resurgence, unfortunately, of systemic racism and so much of the politics of the country that uh, I'd learned very early on uh, uh, through my experiences, the importance of uh, not judging people by first impressions. I benefited by some great college courses I took thanks to the federal government, the LEAPS program. 
paid for my college education, something that the Grazia deeply believed in getting cops educated. So early on, I understood this idea of understand the history of something, not just the image that's directly in front of you. In Sweet Alice, I talk about this in the book, and it's uh, an expression I use all the time, that when my wife and I, and she loved my wife, Ricky, that, uh, and we loved her, when we were leaving, she's Sweet Alice for the audience that's on this uh, show, was a community activist who came out of uh, the Deep South, moved to California like so many blacks in the 50s and 60s, and went on to become one of the foremost community leaders uh, in Los Angeles, Watts, when Watts was almost all black and it's largely almost all Latino now. But uh, she, uh, at one of the first meetings, uh, stood up and said, Chief Bratton, uh, we like you, and I, I, I have your back. And, you know, I had to do the woman. I have your back. And she had it for the seven years I was there. Uh, a lot of people in L.A. trying to stick knives in it. And she was very good at uh, covering my back for me. And uh, Fred Booker, same thing. Fred is a lieutenant, black lieutenant, who had incredible uh, difficult experiences growing up as a sharecropper son in the deep south in the midst of the 50s uh, segregation issues, the, the, the crap that went on in those crazy states in that time. And that as we're leaving in 2009, I come back east, uh, sweet Alice, we go down to see her for the last time, and she gives us a hug. And uh, she says, you know, uh, Chief, you know why we, we like you so much? And I said, no, sweet Alice, why is that? She says, you see us. You really see us. And I talk about in the book is the, 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 the highest accolade I've ever received uh, because I cared so much for that woman, cared so much and understood in our profession the issue of race. If we don't get it right, uh, it's, it, it's, it's going to be the, the original sin that's going to carry forward. And I firmly believe, and as I think you do, because we've talked about this, you're not going to solve the race issue in this country until we own up to it, but you're not going to solve it without the police. Because we are so involved. You, you had a wonderful term of art, Chuck, uh, uh, at a speech you gave. I think it was the ICP or someplace. You talked about weaving the garment. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 that thread that basically, uh, that the center thread, if you will. And that we're the center thread of trying to weave this garment of, uh, of community relations. And so um, I used that expression. I used it at the funeral for the two. We began our conversation about the murders of Detectives Ramos and Lou in New York. And at the funeral, I used that term uh, in the funeral that uh, we're never going to solve this problem of this hatred, hatred of men in blue, uh, uh, hatred of blacks, hatred of Latinos, until we see each other. Joe Biden was in the audience. Uh, he had given the previous eulogy to me, and now President Biden. And uh, you will very frequently hear President Biden use that expression, we see you. Uh, to, to, and he was just very taken with it because it's just, it's simplistic, but it says it all, doesn't it? That uh, we, need to see, we need to see each other. It is absolutely powerful. You know, I, I've used a bit of a different phrase in saying that, you know, police have to learn to see policing through the eyes of those being policed, as opposed to just seeing it through our lens, that blue lens. And my, my, my know, boy used the expression of uh, looking in the mirror, that yeah. seeing us through the mirror, the way other people see us. Wonderful. Let's, let's fast forward because we're running out of time. And I want to talk about some of the current issues. Now, you go back to NYPD. And one thing I found interesting, uh, and, and I want to spend too much time on a second tour of, of NYPD because I want to get into this new, you know, the defunding, abolishing, and, you know, 
the, the current issues facing us. But one thing that really struck me uh, in your book was when you said your first time around, New York was in a crisis of crime. This time, they were in a crisis of trust. I thought that was very powerful and very reflective of the times that we're in right now. It is a crisis of trust. Talk a little bit about that in the context of, you know, the aftermath of George Floyd, the defunding police, abolishing police, uh, qualified immunity. You touch on all those in the last chapter. Well, as you know, I'm a great advocate of Sir Robert Peel's nine principles of policing, created the uh, British Metropolitan Police. Uh, and the first one is the basic mission for which we exist is to prevent crime and disorder. 70s and 80s, we spent all of our time just responding to crime, didn't focus on prevention. Then you and I were at the birthing of community policing, the concept of partnership with the community. What are the problems the community wants addressed? And then we work together, shared responsibility to deal with them and prevent them from coming back. In the 90s, a much simpler time, uh, a much more dangerous time than even some of what we're experiencing at the moment, uh, the police role was to deal with crime and disorder. And the changes we brought about in the 90s, we began to deal more effectively with crime, CompStat and other systems, 100,000 more cops. But we also began to focus on disorder, the so-called Kelling Broken's Windows, quality of life stuff. And it's like a doctor, if he's only going to deal with the uh, thing that's going to immediately kill you in the trauma room and neglects those things and kill you a couple of weeks later, you're going to die anyway. So we came to understand crime and disorder. But then 9-11 changed everything. That, as you know, the funding all went to terrorism. Uh, and then 2006, 2007, smartphones come along, Kindle, Google. And the world of social media exploded and created so many new challenges for us. Cybercrime, uh, the ability for the expansion of pedophilia, human trafficking. And we have the technology of drones we have to worry about. Policing world of the 21st century is a nightmare in many respects. We've not received many more resources to deal with it. We don't train our officers any longer to deal with these broad range of responsibilities. And so as we come forward to 2021, uh, the era we're in now, you and I get to comment on it. We don't have the responsibility of dealing with it any longer. That the issue is this defunding movement, which I, I attack so uh, uh, vigorously, as we all do, this idea that this political hashtag that's driving policy, I did for about a year, a lot of mayors hopped on it and they're going to defund the police. Uh, I think there's a real appreciation from the president on now. What's going to be necessary is refunding the police. More money to train cops, train them for at least a year instead of four or six months before we put them in the street. Keep training them on all these new tools, uh, uh, implicit bias training, de-escalation training, drug, drug awareness training. Well, it takes time. It takes money. And as you know, cities don't want to pay money to have cops sitting in a classroom. They want them in the street. And that's been the bane of our existence. So maybe this time we can convince them, if you want us to deal more effectively with emotional disorder, drug issues, homelessness, you're going to have to train us better. Because I believe it's uh, really, quite frank with you, uh, we're going to fail once again to address those issues by creating new entities. The money's not going to be there. It wasn't there in the 70s when we deinstitutionalized mental institutions, when we depoliced back in the 70s. Remember all the cops were being laid off in the 70s? And then we decriminalized a lot of the laws we had to work with were taken away. Wasn't the same thing going on in 2021? Defund the police, decriminalize. We have all this criminal justice reform that's driving us crazy. I see in Philadelphia, your home city, that federal judges just ordered the city to stop doing any stop, question, and frisk for people they see engaged in public disorder. You're going to just tell the person to move along. 
Uh, it's the, the challenges of the 21st century are phenomenal. The good news coming out of this, that one, the tragic death of Floyd uh, really caused a racial awakening unprecedented in this country and around the world. And we'll see how that goes going forward. But it also is cause, causing a reexamination of what police do, why we do it, can we continue to do it, or should it be given to somebody else? We'd like to get rid of a lot of it, as you know, but I'm willing to bet that we're going to end up partnering with others that we can never totally give it away. But if we're going to still have some responsibility for it, we're going to need to be refunded. And I'm like yourself, Chuck, in this business, we've been at it a long time. I remain optimistic that even in the midst of this terrible crime crisis we're in, this terrible racial tension that we're still dealing with, uh, this lack of trust. In the 90s, we got trust restored because we dealt with crime. In my city of New York City, overall crime is down 80 percent, homicides 90 percent in 2019. The overall country was down 40 percent. And trust built up that the cops could do something about crime. We're going to have to prove once again that we knew something about 21st century crime. And this time, let's do something about race relations also. Well, Bill, our time is winding down. And um, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to, you know, sit with you and and have this discussion. And again, and I see it uh, over your shoulder, but I have my copy too. Uh, the profession, um, Bill Bratton's available everywhere. (laughs) And let me tell you something. This is, this is a very, very good book. Um, it is a, um, a, you not only talk about your career and, and, and the, and the issues that you uh, were confronted with, you're actually teaching a lot in this book where you, you go into the description of you know, qualified immunity and some of the other things. And I really found that to be um, very worthwhile. So for anyone who's interested in um, um, leadership, they should read this book because it's written by one of the foremost leaders, not only in policing, but in this country. And that's Bill Bratt. Let's try so to thank you. you. It's really my honor to have spent time with you. God it's bless. Take been care. A, it's been a fun hour, Chuck. Thank you so much. All the and best. you owe me a signed copy. It's on the way. (laughs) Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. You might be interested in C-SPAN's newest podcast, Book Notes Plus. Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. The 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts.